Episode 2, Meeting the Cowboys, Part 1. What is cavalry? Historically, cavalry is a combat arm that uses the characteristics of mobility, firepower, and shock action, employed at decisive times and places, to sway the course of battle. Its flexibility and daring also make it the force of choice for the essential tasks of reconnaissance and security. It is able to operate detached from the main force for limited periods of time and is frequently used in economy of force roles, responsible for large areas and often fighting grossly outnumbered so that the main force may be moved or massed elsewhere. Cavalry units usually exhibit greater speed than the preponderance of the main force and are likewise able to execute a higher level of maneuver. Early cavalrymen rode horses. Modern ones sit atop mechanized vehicles. Regardless of the mode of transportation, the need for the cavalry remains, and the spirit engendered by the bold horse soldiers of old remains as well. We should not forget this essential ingredient of our American heritage. Gary Parsons and I met when I reported to 717 in October of 2012. He was the standardization pilot for the squadron. Warrant officers are able to further specialize once they have spent a few years as pilots. It's kind of like a doctor. You go through medical school and then you decide that you'll be a cardiologist or an OBGYN or an orthopedist. Warrant officers further hone their skills into specialties as well. There's the maintenance test pilot route where you learn how to fix and test fly an aircraft. There's the tactical operations route where you learn more about how to prepare people for combat operations through pre-mission planning. Then there's becoming an instructor pilot. Each unit has an instructor pilot, and they're responsible for taking brand new aviators, fresh out of flight school, and continuing their training at the unit. They're responsible for helping maintain your flight records, making sure you're doing all of your annual training requirements, and generally making sure pilots are keeping up with all of the knowledge and skills they're expected to have. Standardization pilots are the senior-most instructor pilots. They work at the squadron headquarters and help not just with training, but advising the commander. Gary was the SP for 717 when I arrived. I flew with him a few times, and each time I found myself really nervous for our flight. I wanted to impress him. I wanted to show him that I was capable and competent and that I'd be a good pilot. Inevitably, though, Gary always knew more than me. He'd ask me questions and I'd get a few right, but he'd eventually stump me with some piece of knowledge I hadn't acquired yet. What I loved most about working with him, though, is that he asked all of these questions and tested all of that knowledge, not because he wanted to belittle me or make me feel stupid. I could tell he just wanted me to be the best aviator I could be. He wanted to know that I had the skills and knowledge I needed, because in the end, there are only two people in the cockpit, and if one of them can't hang, then the mission's at risk. When Gary and I uh, sat down on the phone to talk, we ran into a lot of reception issues because he lives out kind of in, on a farm in Tennessee and is cowboying it up these days. He's now flying for Life Flight out there in Tennessee, so still really good and important work. Um, but I wanted to start with him in particular about his family history of uh, service in the military because I, I knew it was kind of a long lineage. So uh, that's where we start off with Gary. Uh, my great-great-uncle uh, 
is uh, he's buried in Belgium. He was killed in April of uh, 45 army. Um, in my dad's family, all the males have served. Uh, in my immediate family, all the males have served. And then uh, in, my, in my family, my, my personal family, uh, my son has served. So uh, it goes back a long way. You know, we kind of all look back on that and, you know, that kind of it was our duty. You know, it was our duty to go and serve mm-hmm. at this point. You know, the family had established something. Um, for me, uh, it's all I've ever wanted to do. I, I just always wanted to be a soldier. Oh, I was always going to join. It's just a matter of how that was going to get started. You know, my dad always wanted me to go to college. He never wanted me to be in the, you know, to be a soldier. So it was a compromise. That's how up in the Marines. My dad kind of always knew I wanted to be an infantry guy like him. And uh, so originally he wouldn't sign the paperwork when I was in high school so I could go away my, uh, before my senior year to boot camp. So then I just waited. I just waited till I was 18 and then I signed the paperwork, but you know, still living at home and still appeasing him so I could go to college. Uh, I went in the Marine Reserves. And when I originally signed up, I was at what they call an SRB clerk. So I wasn't going to be, it was an infantry unit, but I was going to be in the office. Um, and he was, he wasn't sure I was even going to come home after boot camp. He thought I was just going to run off. And, uh, but I came home and I went back to college about six months into the unit. I, I totally, I was not happy being a, a clerk in office. Clerk. So I ended up signing up for infantry. And then uh, that summer, I went off to infantry school, Marine Combat Training, and then School of Infantry. And uh, that's kind of how I got started on this path. I, I found a home. Loved what I did. So yes, you heard that right. The compromise for Gary and his dad was that he would join the Marines, which we had a good chuckle about the fact that the Marine Corps would be a compromise. But anyway, so he was in the Marine Reserves, And he ended up going active duty army because, you know, you get married, you need a little bit more money, honey. Um, So he enlisted in the army as an infantryman, and his first unit was up in Alaska. It's probably worth taking a moment here to explain something a little bit. So just like there are many paths to becoming an officer, there are many different paths to becoming a warrant officer. Um, One of those ways is called street to seat. So you can sign up with your recruiter to become a warrant officer straight off the street with no prior military background. Um, I've only known a couple of folks that have gone that route. More often than not, uh, my warrant officers had some prior military experience as an enlisted soldier. Um, So they were, you know, mechanics or infantrymen or intelligence guys that just decided, you know what, I've had enough doing this job, being enlisted, whatever it was. Um, And so then they put in a request to become a warrant officer. Now, there are a lot of different experiences that can lead to that decision. Um, But yeah, so generally speaking, that's kind of your normal warrant officer path. And Gary, well, Gary went that route. But the real critical decision of that really about choosing the helicopter that I did happened when I was in 3325. I was at JRTC. We had been digging in all day, putting up wire, waiting on the enemy to attack us. And then like four Kiowas flew over, like right at dusk. And so we'd been digging in, filling sandbags all day. 
a couple hours later, they came down the line. They said, war's over, boys. <laughs> the Kiowas found the unit, destroyed them. And I thought about it for a second, and I was like, you got to be kidding me. I've been digging this hole all day long. And those guys went out there and smoked them. I'm like, that's what I want to be. And I just happened to have my flight school packet in at the same time. So Gary went to flight school, and he graduated and picked the Kiowa, ended up coming to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, the center of the universe, to fly there. And one of the things that interested me about Gary's kind of career timeline was that, you know, when I showed up to my unit, we were multiple deployments into Afghanistan. And so there was a lot of history there with that region and a lot of the pilots that had already gone before and kind of knew what to expect or knew what to look for or knew what normal really was. So I was really fortunate in that the people that were training me really knew what the fight looked like. And when Gary graduated flight school in 1998, you know, we were post Gulf War. Um, We were still in places like Bosnia, but but the future was kind of not entirely predictable. So he showed up to a unit and, you know, what were you training for? What were your training missions like? What were you preparing for? Because I don't think anyone was was really working on things like counterinsurgency and how to fly in that kind of battlefield. So we spent some time talking about that. Um, it's the same thing as when I started in the, in the military and. 1988, we were still focused on the Soviet Motorized Rifle Regiment, you know. Um, There had been some changes, I mean, still changes. Nobody had any TTP for it uh, because of Mogadishu. Uh, That kind of fighting started, but we hadn't developed anything for it. You know, we're still going out to battle positions and setting up, making kill boxes. You know, that was what we did. Yeah, it was it was uh, first the seventeenth cap and then one eight two attack, and they were both Kiowa units, and it all had to do with being air mobile, you know, being able to deploy rapidly, deploy. So Bragg had gotten rid of their Cobras and Apaches. The Apaches actually belonged on core level at that time. Um, so yeah, so that's what we did because we were able to rapidly deploy, build up upon landing, and go fight. That last part to me was really interesting because. Again, I, I joined the military in such a different time and a different place that, you know, my generation is really used to falling in on hard stand buildings and a dining facility that's already there. And my generation doesn't think all that often about rapidly deploying major army units because we've honestly never really had to do it. And so it was super kind of eye-opening to me that, you know, back in the late 90s, Fort Bragg was the rapidly deploying mobile army entity. And that was the whole pride of being in the airborne was that you could get anywhere within 36 hours, basically. And they actually had Kiowas taking on attack roles um, because they could fold the blades back, roll it into a big C-130 airplane and get them anywhere they needed to go in the world, push them out, unfold the blades, and fly. Um, I think that's something maybe we've kind of lost over the years is that, you know, you can't fit an Apache into a C-130 and get it out and up in the air in four hours. Um, So, yeah, it was just 
kind of one of those moments for me that I hadn't really thought that much about. Gary's got a lot of um, pretty impressive resume markers, but one of them is that he actually was in Bosnia for a while. Mostly reconnaissance patrols, uh, checking weapon storage sites. So we kind of had a patrol route and we went around day and night just to make sure that none of the equipment that was supposed to be in the weapon storage sites moved. Um, we responded to some riots. Um, of course, we did a gunnery while we were there. Uh, that was really about it. I was actually there at the end of my tour when the World Trade Center was attacked. That was surreal. I was actually on QRF. QRF stands for Quick Reaction Force, um, and it basically means you are set and ready to get in the aircraft, crank it up, and go ASAP uh, to respond to something that's happening on the ground that no one really anticipated. And uh, James Galendez came in. I was laying on the couch, and he's like, did you see somebody hit the World Trade Center with a plane? I didn't even think nothing of it. Like, nothing was being said. So I walked up to the coffee shop, and I mean, everybody, there was outdoor TVs around the coffee shop, Camp Comanche. Everybody was dead silent. Like, everybody was just dead silent. About 45 minutes later, you know, the sirens go off. Everybody's putting battle rattle on, you know, stand to. Battle rattle is army talk for helmet, bulletproof vest, weapon, all that cool war-looking stuff. And uh, stand to is basically like a heightened state of alert. Generally, it's something you do in the morning, but um, it's where people kind of go man their battle positions and, and get ready for an attack. About an hour later, they were like, all right, stand down. We're just going to double up the perimeter guards and go about business. When we went to leave, there was extra security measures taken to ensure that we could get get the aircraft to port. And then when we exfilled to get on the plane to leave, like everything was, you kind of knew that like, this is for real. Like this is no joke. Bosnia, what was coming next didn't even compare to what we did. That I've been blessed once again, that before every major event happened, the event before it was preparing me for the next one. In Honduras, I only carried 110 rounds. I went to the border, I was carrying 220. I was, I thought that was really weird. And the next thing you know, I'm in Bosnia. I'm carrying 300 rounds in a Hellfire. 300 rounds, 50 cal in a Hellfire. And then not to know that like my next event was going to be invading Iraq, which <laughs> we were going to be armed to the teeth. And it's just it's kind of strange. My whole 30 years, um, I have 29 years of service. And like every year that went by from the beginning to the end was just I don't know, getting ready for the next event. I'm just lucky like that. I had to leave the beer can cracking open in because uh, it's just Gary Parsons in a nutshell. In fact, one of my earliest memories of Gary was at the spur ride dinner. So one of the things that you do in a cavalry unit is wear spurs. But you don't just get to have spurs. So in the tradition of the cavalry, um, they used to shave horses' tails, and new riders would get on the horses with shaved tails, and they called them 
shavetails because they're the new guys that need the most training. They're the least safe to be around. And when um, they would do drills and whatnot with their sabers, you would know who to give a wide berth to because their horse had a shaved tail. Um, and they wouldn't give them spurs because it would just add to a lot of problems for a new calf guy. Um, so the tradition has continued that you have to earn your spurs. You don't just get them day one. So units will do things called spur rides. Now, there's obviously been a lot of friction in history with hazing in the military, but my experience with the spur ride at 717, it was not hazing. It was like good-hearted fun. And we had to do all of these different activities and drills and things out in the back 40 training area of Fort Campbell and had a great time. And then that week culminated with a big spur ride dinner and everyone got cleaned up and we had a big catered meal in the hangar and it was a great time. In addition to spur rides, though, to get your spurs, uh, you don't just get a Stetson when you join a cavalry unit. So, of course, you know, cav units are the cowboys. They used to wear these big Stetson cowboy hats, and that tradition has also continued. But again, you got to break that sucker in. And so generally speak, and again, these can go south really fast. That was not my experience. I had a great time. So the day I got my spurs, I also had bought a Stetson and brought it to the dinner to get broken in. And there's a lot of different ways that units do this. Um, In 717, they had this great tradition of doing things that lined up with the history of the calf. So using tequila and things like that that went along with kind of the calf Southwest experience. Um, but Gary did the whole presentation and, at you know, the hat gets passed around and people can put what they want in it. So the hat's been passed around this circle and Lord knows how much booze has been poured in it. And then, of course, I have to chug the booze out of the hat before I can wear it. Well, Gary had a lip of dip in and at the end, I think just looked me dead in the eye and figured I could handle it. And he stuck his finger in his lip and he pulled that dip out and he chucked it in my Stetson and said, go get him, cowgirl. And then I and then as a, you know, I don't know if it's dumb or courageous or whatever, but I chugged it and at a certain point, they just kind of tip it on your head and you're done, right? But I did my best. Yeah, that's kind of like my earliest memory of Gary Parsons. And I'm sure that people will be mortified by that. I promise you, I wanted to do it. It was fine by me. I did not feel whatever. I'm not going to justify it. I had a great time. So that's Gary Parsons. And we will hear more from him later on, definitely about his experiences invading Iraq Um, and then later on in Afghanistan as well. But now we're going to transition to Colonel Jimmy Blackman. And again, so he was the senior leader leader in 159th Combat Aviation Brigade. So he's like the head honcho. He's in charge. And as with all senior leaders, your reputation will precede you, good or bad. And the one thing that preceded him above all else was running. So I got to the unit and a couple of weeks later, um, he had scheduled a physical training session with a lot of the junior officers in the unit. And typically speaking, when senior leaders would do this, like no one thought much, like there wasn't a whole lot of 
sweating going on because like the old guy generally isn't going to keep up with the young pups right but I was told very specifically like make sure you stretch make sure you warm up because you are going to run and Colonel Blackman smoked all of us like (laughs) there are a lot of really fit lieutenants in our unit and I only like can think of one or two that kept up with him and they were like college star athletes right um he yeah physically fit and that's the thing I remember hearing about him first um I was fortunate later on to get to fly with him downrange for one flight and get some you know good one-on-one time with with our brigade commander and learned a lot uh from him and I'm excited for you to get to meet him so Colonel Blackman Army life came somewhat um, serendipitously, I guess. Uh, my dad was drafted for the Korean War, and uh, we were Mill Village uh, people. My dad and mom worked the Mill Village. Uh, most of my dad ever made in a single year of his life was $16,200. When I was in high school, he made three twenty-five an hour working at the mill. And, um, I mean, I used to sit around the lunchroom table and debate with my friends what would be the best shift to work based on the things we wanted to do. For me, I was passionate about two things, uh, hunting and girls. So I decided at some point that, hey, you know, you don't need to sleep till you're like 40 years old. That's what old people do. So I could work third shift and I could hunt or fish in the morning and date at night. And so the mill was a foregone conclusion for me. I mean, I, you know, that's just what my people did. And uh, army recruiters showed up one day and knocked on our raggedy screen door and said, Hey son, how would you like to join the army? And I, I saw myself and my dad, you know, drafted for the Korean War, came back, hung that old Eisenhower jacket in his closet, Corporal Blackman, and went right back to the mill. And when that recruiter asked me, I instantly saw myself in that uniform. And I thought, that's a way out. And uh, and so I said, yeah. And then he went on to say, hey, well, you know, you ever want to go to college someday? And I remember laughing at him. So like, my people don't go to college. There's no way I could afford college. You know? And he goes, oh, there's, there's this thing called Montgomery GI Bill. You know, it'll it'll help you pay for college. And, uh, I said, sure. So I mean, give me some of that. I mean, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a clue. And, uh, so fast forward, you know, a few decades and, and it all, it all kind of panned out. It was a way out. Well, I was commissioned in 91, but, um, I was, I had full intent of going infantry until I went to pre-camp. And, uh, I mean, there was no doubt I wanted, you know, I, I wanted to be in the infantry and I, uh, I went to pre-camp and I saw the cavalry and I'd never, I mean, of course, I mean, I'm, my undergrads in history and I'd studied, you know, the cavalry, but, and I, and I liked the idea of it, the panache, the, I really liked the, the fact that they got to, they seemed to get to independently operate based on intent more than anyone else. I mean, you look at, you know, going back and my, my experience, you know, I, I, I studied, you know, Robert E. Lee in the Army of Northern Virginia a lot. And I look at, you know, even though Jeb Stewart, you know, failed him there <laughs> before Gettysburg, he just gave him some intent and let him go. And that's kind of the, the image that was in my mind when I went out to pre-camp and I saw these guys uh, with cavalry boots and Stetson hats and talking about the mission of the cavalry, reconnaissance and security, the eyes and ears of the commander. That really appealed to me. 
And that experience changed my changed my trajectory completely. I went to flight school uh, 91, 92. Then I went to ranger school. Then I reported to third third ACR. We were at Fort Bliss, Texas then. And uh, the it was still very predictable. It was a Cold War rotation. We had, a, you know, when I got there, we had 18 divisions in the Army. So, um, you know, the, the Berlin Wall has fallen. Uh, you know, the, the Cold War is essentially ending. Um, we had Desert Storm where we had catastrophic success and we, you know, airland battle was proven there as the doctrine that would, you know, win any war. No one would face America. We learned so many bad habits from that, especially in aviation. Um, but it was predictable. So I would show up and you were going to do, so we had three ground squadrons, armor squad, armored cavalry squadrons and an air squadron. And you were going to start, uh, you know, it was a building block. You were going to do platoon lanes first and that last, you know, several weeks, you'd do a field training exercise. You'd come back, you'd refit, you'd go do troop lanes and you'd come back, refit, you'd go do squadron uh, FTX and squadron exercise lanes doing all your, your battle drills. You do gunnery during that time. And then you do a regimental FTX in, uh, you know, New Mexico, Doniana base camp, McGregor base camp. And then you would come back, refit, and you would go to national training center. We always did our fall. I think September was our month and it was always the same every year. So you knew exactly when you were going to be in the field, you knew exactly when you could take leave, you knew exactly when you were going to, to NTC, we'd come back at the end of September, refit, and then you'd have four day weekends till the end of the year and Christmas. And you started all over again. We did that every year. Okay. I've got to jump in here real quick. Um, first of all, listening back to this, I think Colonel Blackman might be, the fastest talking Southerner I've ever met. Um, but aside from that, if you commissioned in the army or probably military at large after, I don't know, maybe 2003, 2004, 2005, you probably wish you had a training plan like Colonel Blackman is describing here. Um, what he's describing for like the 90s, life of an air cav guy blows my mind. So um, in the army, we have something called sergeant's time training, and it's meant to be an opportunity for non-commissioned officers, like the higher ranking um, enlisted soldiers to train their soldiers outside of any other like large training scheme. And, And generally speaking, it's your basic skills, right? Like cleaning your weapons, basic maneuvering on the battlefield, um, catching up on some of those skills you maybe learned in basic that you haven't touched on in a while. So that's sergeant's time training. And things get so hectic and so crazy and training calendars change so frequently. I remember I wanted to scream in the middle of a squadron meeting because all of the, you know, company command teams and junior leaders just got chewed out this one meeting because we had all canceled sergeant's time training for the next week. And I mean, we got railed up one side and down the other for it because really it's a great opportunity for training that if done right can 
be really effective. Um, but so often there were a thousand other things going on that it would really be the last priority and it would be the easiest thing to cancel. Um, and I think we all just sat there wanting to like pull our hair out or scream and be like, how can you expect us to do that training or plan that training if you're going to send down these new requirements or these new events within 12 hours of executing them? Like things just get so crazy now. Um, it's pretty unbelievable. So when he was talking about like a very predictable annual training plan that you could count on, like, oh man, I probably could have stayed in the army a whole lot longer if, uh, if that had been the world I lived in. Like a lot of the other guys that we've heard from, um, Colonel Blackman was actually already in the military when 9-11 happened. Um, so I was interested to get his perspective on that day. On 9-11, I was a recorder running promotion and selection boards at the Department of Army Secretariat, so Old Town, Virginia. Oh, no, I remember it distinctly. So I was driving on uh, 495, going to work. I was listening to the Jack Diamond Morning Show, and he said, uh, hey, a, a plane has, has hit the, you know, the, the tower. And I remember visualizing in my mind that some idiot in a Cessna <laughs> was, you know, going to buzz downtown New York, probably taking pictures and ran into the building. And I remember having this image of the tail of this, you know, like Cessna sticking out of a, you know, 80, 80th story window or something. I was like, God, what a knucklehead, you know? So I walked into work and when I got in there, they had the TV on and, and there was the scene. And within minutes we felt this huge explosion, you know, uh, and, and, we look out the window and there's smoke billowing up at, uh, you know, over at the Pentagon and, uh, it had hit the G1's office. It was hard to, um, if I would have told you on September 10th, 2001, that America would be, you know, the homeland would be attacked, you would have laughed at me and said I was stupid. So I think it was a, a, a this feeling of unbelief, like what just happened? How is this possible? How could, the United States actually have been attacked and, you know, pretty quickly we realized it wasn't a nation state. It was, it was a, a you know, a terrorist deal, but, um, but a somewhat disbelief more than anything, I think. And now what, you know, now what? Well, the obvious next question is, yeah, what's next? Um, and I've really appreciated hearing from these guys that were in uniform when September 11th happened. Um, I was in seventh grade, so my perspective was totally different um, about what happened after September 11th. And obviously, given that Colonel Blackman was right next to the Pentagon when um, it was attacked, he's got a totally different perspective. And, And then hearing kind of what the next plan was or what the rumors were, like all of that is really fascinating to me. Um, And in this next clip, you'll hear him reference a couple of terms you may not be familiar with. The first one is a tier one unit. So tier one units are your highest trained, most lethal, kind of most secretive units that maybe do the things that you don't always hear about. Um, and then he refers to JSOC, which is the Joint Special Operations Command, and, and that's the command that is in charge of all of these different Tier 1 specialty uh, units. So, um, but yeah, 
What was the plan? None of the Tier 1 forces were in the United States. There was a big joint exercise going on uh, abroad. And so the first big thing that took place was um, was a, a massive recall um, of everyone. And so they got back and... Uh, of course, JSOC got, you know, the first guidance, which was, uh, I mean, Bush 43 gave him some guidance. He said, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda has taken responsibility for this. They own it. And so I want to go after them. I do not want a clandestine operation. I want the world to see because the intent is I want them to know there's nowhere you can go, nowhere you can hide that, that we can't come and get you. And so they began, you know, course of action development for things that they could do. There were several different courses of action that came about and and ultimately uh you know the the decision was to go from the Gulf of Oman they had ships there to go after Zawahiri number 2 and Al-Qaeda had some places uh houses there in Kandahar so you know October 7th I think it was October 7 2001 was the the first attack a pretty amazing operation uh, three air-to-air refuels of the fleet to get there and back because, of course, Afghanistan's not easy to get to. You know, I mean, it's a landlocked country. And so, um, you know, they did not get him. We don't know if he's dead today or not. He was pretty old then. But, you know, gathered great intel and met the intent of the mission, which was, uh, you know, we can come and we can get you. And, and, and that was, you know, that was achieved. And that was Operation Number One. After Operation Number One, came what would become a new national endeavor, the War on Terror. It would take members of our military, defense industrial complex, and other governmental agencies into the Middle East with a singular focus, defeat terrorism. We'll hear more from Colonel Blackman and Gary later on in the series about their experiences in both Iraq and Afghanistan. If you enjoyed hearing from Colonel Blackman, I encourage you to check out some of his written work. He has three books available for sale on Amazon, Southern Roots, Pale Horse, and Cowboys Over Iraq. Next week, in part two of Meeting the Cowboys, we'll hear from Brody Smith. Thank you so much for joining us. Death Rides.